0: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. From the Revolution to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 34. You don't know this, but I am recording this episode on April the 25th, or Anzac Day. At 2.30am, I rolled out of bed to make the three-hour trip up to Kansas City to attend the centennial celebrations at the National World War I Museum of the United States. There were representatives there from several nations, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Turkey among them. It was a solemn dawn ceremony to commemorate all of the troops that took part in the landings at Gallipoli, and all of the service men and women from Australia and New Zealand since that date. You can check out some photos and a bit more information, including a story of how I made a complete fool of myself and somehow managed to spill a boiling hot cup of coffee on my foot in front of a major from the Australian Army in the link in the show notes or in the social media posts accompanying this episode on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyofthegreatwar, or Twitter at twitter.com slash historygreatwar, or even on Medium, where I posted the story, at medium.com slash at war. Since I have been gone for a few weeks, I would like to thank Mark for his donation to the show and for his words of encouragement. You have no idea how much those mean, and I would also like to throw a thank you out to everybody who has left the show a review on iTunes. It is the best way to get more people to notice the show, and I thank you for it. This episode is something of a special one for this year, because it involves the Germans making a large attack on the Western Front. As we have discussed, the Germans were, for the most part, holding to the defensive in the west so that they could move troops to the east. But there was one large attack that they launched in Belgium in 1915, and it would become to be called the Second Battle of Ypres. It is most notable as the first occurrence of poison gas being used on the western front. Now, if you remember, the Germans had used gas before, in the east against the Russians. In that instance, it was just concentrated tear gas, and it wasn't particularly effective, at least partially due to the cold, which had prevented it from becoming properly aerosoled, so it didn't spread over the lines as they expected. They had new gas and a new delivery system to use at Ypres, and cold wouldn't be a problem. What would follow is some of the most horrifying moments for any soldiers at any point during the war. Gas would become one of the legacies of the war, both in the form of battlefield accounts and the men affected for the rest of their lives. Second Ypres was really the beginning of that story. Before we continue, I guess we have to have a conversation about how to pronounce Ypres again. This is really the topic that just won't go away, but this time I have some input from a listener in Belgium. This is good information all around, so I thought I would share it. So I have been pronouncing the name as Ypres, which is the French name for the city, but the city is actually located in the Flemish region of Belgium, and I am told they pronounce it as Ypres, and it is spelled quite differently. Apparently, this is a rather sensitive subject in the region. So from here on out, I'm going to pronounce it Ypres, uh, so don't get confused. Ypres equals Ypres. The attack at Ypres had its roots in the process of the Germans moving their troops from the west to the east. After Neuve-Chapelle, uh, Joffer wanted the British to launch more attacks on the area of the front, to pull more German resources towards them so that the French had an easier time. There were continuing reports of the Germans moving troops to the east, which they had been doing for months now. So the French and British knew that the Germans were moving troops, but the Germans knew that they knew. This put Falkenhayn into a position where he decided to launch an attack in April, just to make it clear that the Germans weren't pulling everybody out of the line, and they were still dangerous. It was actually pretty smart. The Allies 100% did not expect the Germans to launch an attack on the Western Front, in spring 1915. But there was a drawback. The Germans couldn't reroute too many resources for the effort. I mean, there was a reason they were moving most of their troops to the east. So to make up for the lack of men and resources, it was decided that the Germans would bring out a great equalizer that they had been testing. Eber would be the testing ground for a new form of gas that the Germans had been developing in secret for several years. Gas was of course expressly forbidden by the Hague Convention, which the Germans had signed. But really, that was just a piece of paper, right? Now, I am simplifying that a bit too much there. Really, the Germans justified their action by pointing out the violation of the treaty by the Allies, specifically the blockade of German ports from receiving non-military goods like food, which was also forbidden by the Convention. We will talk a lot more about the blockade and its ramifications in later episodes, but using it as a justification for the use of poison gas is something that is often forgotten. Falkenhayn evaluated several places along the front that the attack could be launched at, before deciding on Ypres. It had several benefits, uh, the first of which was that the area was a place where the French and British lines intermingled, and this might just hinder some communication between the troops. He also decided that the attack would be in late April. Now, a new gas would be used, and it was called chlorine gas, which was far more potent than the gas used in the East during the winter. Instead of just incapacitating the troops, the gas could kill them with extended exposure. The gas caused overproduction of fluid in the lungs. This overproduction would result in a sort of internal drowning. The men would be able to feel themselves losing the ability to breathe, without any way to stop it. A truly horrible way to die. Now, the gas was a byproduct of the German dye-making process, which was controlled by the IG Farben firm in the Ruhr region of Germany. And the German chemical industry produced something like 85% of the global supply of chlorine gas in 1915. The gas would be delivered from large tanks set up along the front with valves and pipes connecting them that would be opened before the attack. There were 6,000 tanks of gas, which equated to something like 160 tons of it in total. So, a lot of gas. The release method required the wind to be, first of all, blowing in the right direction, so it wouldn't blow back into German lines. Second, it required it to be blowing reasonably quickly, so that the gas would get carried across no man's land and wouldn't just sit in it, something that would also get in the Germans' way. And finally, the wind couldn't be blowing too strong, or the gas would be quickly blown off the battlefield without having the necessary effect. This obviously made planning the attack difficult, since all of the conditions would have to be absolutely pristine to maximize the effect of the chlorine. The Germans, of course, knew all these problems, so they didn't really pinpoint the exact moment of the attack until just a few days beforehand. Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy sometimes I just do not want to cook, and that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey, chili, and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34 plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier. And really, I need both of those things. So head over to factormeals.com slash GW50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com slash GW50 to get 50% off. The battle would begin late in the afternoon on April the 22nd, and the Allied commanders weren't completely surprised by the attack or the gas. They knew that something was up, and they knew that it would probably be a gas attack of some kind. They knew these things because they had intercepted German messages about bringing gas masks up to the front. The preparations by the Germans also hadn't went completely unnoticed. After all, there were a ton of gas cylinders, pipes, and valves to get to the front, Without the Allies noticing. And this was completely out of place activity, so they knew that something was going to happen. The French had even captured a German soldier who told them about the preparations and the chlorine gas weeks before the attack would take place. So the obvious question would be why were all of these warnings unheeded by the French and British high command? That's a great question. And right now I'm going to greatly disappoint you by saying I don't have a great answer. It seems that for the most part, the French and British didn't believe the reports they were hearing or attributed the activity to something else. This meant that at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the Germans opened the valves on the gas tanks and the gas started moving across the battlefield. It took the form of a grayish-greenish cloud that drifted on the wind. Directly in its path were two French divisions, the 87th and the 45th. The 45th was a colonial division, with troops from all over the French African colonies. They saw the gas moving towards them, but they didn't really know what it was or what to do about it. Most of them just thought that it was maybe like a smoke screen or some other benign substance. The use of smoke screens wasn't prevalent at this point in the war, but it wasn't completely unheard of either. When the cloud began to move over the trenches, the troops quickly found out that they were wrong. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Curry would describe the experience of being gassed like this. Quote, when it is first breathed, it is not unpleasant, smelling not unlike chloroform. But very soon it stings the mucous membrane of the mouth, the eyes, and the nose. The lungs feel as if they are filled with rheumatism. The tissues of the lungs are scalded and broken down, and it takes a man a long time to recover. End quote. As the troops began to experience the gas along the line, panic set in, and the line completely broke. There were many times during the war when you could find fault in troops breaking and retreating, and this instance is definitely does not fall into that category. Their retreat quickly began, and a gap of some 8,000 yards wide was opened in the front. Next to the French troops were the 1st Canadian Division, which was the 1st Canadian Division to find themselves on the Western Front. The first warning that they had was the sight of the broken French m- units moving towards the rear. Anthony R. Hossack was among the Canadians in the line. Quote, Plainly something terrible was happening. What was it? Officers, and staff officers too, stood gazing at the scene, awestruck and dumbfounded. For in the northerly breeze there came a pungent nauseating smell, that tickled the throat and made our eyes smart. The horses and men were still pouring down the road, two or three men on a horse, I saw, while over the field streamed mobs of infantry, the dusky warriors of French Africa. Away went their rifles, equipment, even their tunics, that they might run the faster. One man came stumbling toward our lines. An officer of ours held him up with a leveled revolver. What's the matter, you bloody lot of cowards? says he. The Zov was frothing at the mouth, and his eyes started from their sockets, and he fell writhing at the officer's feet. While well, Hossack speaks of cowardice in the quote above, and this is echoed in many accounts of the moment that the Canadians saw the retreating French, as soon as the Canadian troops began to realize what exactly was happening, these accusations were swept away. Sir John French would directly address this fact after the battle in his official account. I wish particularly to repudiate any idea of attaching the least blame to the French division for this unfortunate incident. After all the examples of our gallant allies have shown of dogged, tenacious courage in the many trying situations in which they have been placed throughout the course of the campaign, it is quite superfluous for me to dwell on this aspect of the incident. And I could only express my firm conviction that if any troops in the world had been able to hold their trenches in the face of such a treacherous and altogether unexpected onslaught, the French division would have stood firm. Quote. The Canadians tried to cover as much of the gap that had developed in the line as possible, but they also began to experience the gas. A Canadian sergeant would say, Quote, "the chaps were all gasping and they couldn't breathe and it was ghastly especially for the wounded terrible for a wounded man to lie there the gasping the gasping" End quote. behind the gas the german troops who were supposed to advance quickly were advancing far from what anybody would describe as quickly first of all they weren't exactly confident in the gas masks that they had been issued before the attack and also When they got to the first line of trenches and began to see the effects of the gas, they were in no hurry to catch up to the cloud. What they found were men lying in the trenches, struggling for breath, gasping, suffocating. Not helped by the fact that the gas stuck in the bottom of the trenches where they were laying, making the effects even worse. So while the Germans weren't advancing as fast as they should have, at the higher levels of German command, they didn't realize how much of an opportunity they had. They knew that there was a gap in the lines. They knew that they could push men through. But they didn't realize that, quite literally, the road all the way to Ypres was open. By the time they realized their opportunity, the Allies were already moving in troops to fill the gap. The bravery and accomplishments of the Canadians cannot be understated at this time. They were not as heavily affected by the gas as the French, but they were under constant German pressure from the moment the attack started. Even while under this pressure, They were able to hang on to their positions to prevent the breach in the lines from widening, something that could have started a chain reaction to roll up the lines all around the salient. It isn't inconceivable that the Allies would have been completely pushed out of the Ypres salient if the Canadians were unable to hold on to their lines. A very good showing for their first time in a large action on the front. The 1st Canadian Division would actually end up being known as one of the very best in the entire Allied line by the end of the war. And this reputation started at Eber. It wasn't long after the attack on April the 22nd that the gas was identified as chlorine gas by the Allies. Word was quickly spread through the ranks that the gas was water-soluble. The men could take a rag and soak it in water and cover their mouths and nose with it. While not a perfect solution, it would take most of the bite out of the gas, and most importantly, would make it far less lethal. Lieutenant Colonel Ferguson of the 28th Division is credited with the discovery both of the type of gas and the partial countermeasures. The attacks would continue on April the 24th, after the Germans had taken a bit of a break, to regroup. This time they focused on the Canadians. With the warning that they had, the gas was less effective, and the attack would soon be stopped before the British and Canadians began to counterattack. One of the divisions used in the attacks was the 50th Division, one of the first appearances of the territorial divisions on the front. One of the men of the 50th was Private William Quinton, who would have this to say about his first experience with gas. No words of mine can ever describe my feelings as we inhaled the first mouthful. We choked, spit, and coughed. My lungs felt as though they were being burned out and were going to burst. Red hot needles were being thrust into my eyes. End quote. The counterattacks, while launched all across the line, would have little success, although they would prevent further German attacks, which I guess is a success in and of itself. On the evening of April the 24th, General Smith Dorian, commander of the troops around Ypres, requested to Sir John French that the attacks be stopped. This request was denied. As a consequence, on the 25th, another attack was launched, this time with newly arrived divisions from India and another territorial division, both of which were nearly annihilated. Again, Smith Dorian requested a halt to the attacks, and again he was denied. The crux of the problem was that Sir John French had been promised by the French that French troops would arrive soon to assist him in the attacks. He was also told that the British had to maintain pressure on the Germans while the French troops were moved in. Therefore, day after day, the attacks went forward. It wouldn't be until the 1st of May that the French finally admitted that there were no troops on their way. On the 1st of May, the Germans also unleashed another gas-assisted attack, which almost broke through the southern end of the salient. The British line in that area was pushed back several miles toward the city, and the entire salient was then withdrawn three miles towards the city in response. The attacks would continue from both sides for another few weeks, but they would be much smaller than before and would have much less impact. Oh, and Smith Dorian, who had tried time and again to get the attacks halted, was dismissed on May 6th, with Sir John French citing his pessimism during the battle as the cause. Smith Dorian's war, with the exception of some home duties and a trip to Africa that was cut short by sickness, was done. To my money, he was one of the best British generals of the first two years of the war. After the fighting died down, the Germans were left with around 40,000 casualties, and the Allies something like 65,000. The Ypres salient was pushed back further towards the city, which was a success but it did still exist, in spite of the best efforts of the Germans. The lasting history of this battle was definitely the gas attack, and the Germans had, honestly, wasted their great instrument of war. Their test of the gas was far more successful than they ever could have dreamed, but now the Allies would be ready for it, and it would never again have such a great effect. There are many examples of experiments not going well during the war, and costing a lot of men their lives this is an example of an experiment going better than hoped, and it couldn't be taken advantage of. It sort of reminds me about what will happen with tanks uh, here in a couple of years. Gas warfare would become pretty much commonplace on the, f- on the Western Front over the next three years. The only changes were that the method of delivery would be improved, and the types of gas would become more and more lethal. Chlorine would be replaced by phosgene, which was destined to be replaced by mustard gas. However, even as the gas got more and more potent, with the armies ready for it, and with gas masks for every man, it would never again produce such results as it did late in the day on April the 22nd, 1915, against those poor souls of the two French divisions in its path. I hope you will join me again next week as we dive into some of the economic consequences of the war. Now, for those paying attention, uh, I said last episode that this episode would cover the economic information, but I just had my episodes out of order. Anyway, I hope you have a great week, and hopefully I will talk to you
0: next week.